Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief uh, medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everyone, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And, and today, guys, we are so excited to have Dr. Paul Helgerson with us coming all the way from Charlottesville, Virginia. Paul is the Associate Chief Medical Officer for the University of Virginia Hospitals. He has a great interest in um, applying lean methodology to healthcare and quality. And Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks thanks for the invitation to be here and, and, and thank you. This is a subject that's near and dear to me. I've been a hospitalist, a hospital medicine physician for the last 20 years. The first half of that was out on the West Coast where I trained and worked in several Bay Area academic medical centers, uh, as well as the VA out there. And, and that's where I first learned to sort of do and coach lean in terms of both the process improvement methodologies and a lot of the daily huddles that we've continued to work on. I've been at UVA for about a decade and in various operational and hospital management roles. I'm, I'm now the associate chief medical officer for acute care. And so as you can imagine, the last couple of years have been all about standing up COVID units and taking them down and moving them and, and managing volumes and things like this. But as a part of that, we've we've stuck true to a lot of the lean methodology, the daily huddles, the daily management that we've learned, which has been a real passion of mine, wearing various medical director hats and, and, and attending to the daily operations. I was before we kind of get into the huddles and uh, I wonder, did, did Paul, do you have any advanced training other than than just your on the job experience? And the reason I ask, because I have a lot of we have a lot of physicians who approach us and they say, hey, I, I, I really would get into like to get into physician leadership. Is it absolutely necessary that I have a an MBA or an MHA? I, I just kind of wanted to get your perspective. Well, I, I do not. And honestly, my, my perception is that there's a lot more available to physicians that are interested in what you're talking about now than there was 20 years ago when I was first getting interested in quality. Um, I would say that for, for those that have this option, one of the things that I really benefited from was early in my career in hospital medicine, I was affiliated with a VA institution in which I did a lot of quality. And many, a lot of their national structure, the quality improvement collaboratives, uh, the willingness to send you out and train in various places and shorter courses. I went to the IHI a fair amount and got training in managing hospital operations. So not not an advanced degree, but uh, I, I did seek out a lot of CME and some of those things and was fortunate then to be brought into a, a coalition of docs that were teaching a lot of those things to other VA physicians. Um, and learned a lot on the job from some of the mentors doing that. Uh, so I certainly benefited a lot from reaching outside of my own institution to see what others were doing, um, you know, some of the secrets that they'd figured out, but but a, but a degree now. Sure, okay. And, you know, it sounds like you've had a long career of moving into quality. What sparked your interest in it in the beginning? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure mine was the most common pathway, but I'd say there was there was two things that got me there. One was that I, early on in my career, had a big interest in education. I continue to and saw a need then to begin educating our trainees in a lot of quality and safety content. And, and that was more or less a, a learn as you do or do as you learn sort of enterprise for me. But it, it filled a niche in our, our training program at the time. 
and a, a few of the experiential things that I'd done with learners there got enough attention at my health systems that then that grew into more formal leadership roles and doing the quality and safety. And, and if there's something I could derive from that as a lesson that might be generalizable is that there's so much so much capital, so much time, so much interest to put you know, in, in many academic places put into those, those trainee affiliated programs that being able to tie those two together, I thought made it easier to get things done, right? Rather than deciding what the sure. hospital needed to do and figuring out how to get that message through to trainees later. Yeah. Um, I, 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 would, I would say in short that I also really benefited from a leadership that was, that was really interested in this, right? But before they were sort of forced to be, they saw a lot of good in, in, in training physician leaders in quality improvement and were willing to invest in me as, as a relatively junior hospitalist. And that's that's a great story. And um, I know uh, Skip is not with us right now, and hopefully he'll be jumping on here in a little bit. But um, I think Skip said that he met you uh, at a conference out in Stanford um, a few months ago. I can't remember if it was back in the summer or whatnot, but um, he said out there you were talking about um, daily huddles and the importance of those. And you know, when I think back, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about a huddle is I was a football player and, you know, we'd huddle up and, you know, even play in backyard football, you'd all get together and you'd draw on the ground. OK, you do this, you do that. Talk to us about the importance of huddles in healthcare. Uh, happy to. And I, th I think that you know, I've, I've had a sort of an arc in my own understanding over the last, you know, five to 10 years and the value of those. And it's easiest for me to separate it pre-COVID. And then once once COVID hit us, what we learned through that experience about those huddles. And that that was the topic of, of my remarks out at that, that Stanford Lean Healthcare Conference, which as an aside, I would recommend to, to anyone who ever has the opportunity to attend. Um, you know, for, Jake, Skip didn't invite us to that. We need to, we need to no. work on that for next year. <laughs> He only invites well, us to I mean, the cold would, climates. Who wouldn't want to go to Palo Alto? Yeah. Well, yeah, tell, tell, tell Skip he's got to broaden the coalition of folks getting out there. But it's uh, it, wonderful because it, it's really an international audience there. And you can learn a lot, I think, from folks that have been able to apply these methods in, in a variety of environments, variety of financial incentives, et cetera, that, that drive their health system. But, you know, the the lean that I had learned had had always had a lot to do with, you know, the the PDCA type learning at the front line that you're you're apt to do in implementing standards of care that relate to common quality improvement objectives, right? So we're we're going to reduce hospital acquired infections. We're going to improve hand hygiene. We're going to you know this is sort of the real blocking and tackling of of what we do on the front lines. But and it's at its essence, it's about making sure that everybody understands a standard that you've been able to teach to that often just in time out on the unit, but then there's a lot of learning to do. You know, why, why didn't we, we, we get the job done on that particular case that turned into a collapse or turned into a caudy? Was it an issue that we weren't using the standard work, that the standard work wasn't working and therefore needs to change? What can we learn from that? What, you know, how can that evolve? And, and that was a, a lot of what it, it really took to implement a lot of these things that we'd seen move the needle on on common quality objectives, but it uh, it was easier said than done, right? That healthcare providers are busy; they're often particularly busy at the change of shift. 
what it, it might be really important to me that we're reducing a hospital acquired infection rate, but a little less important than the overall hierarchy of need that a, a given nurse or a given doctor has walking into that, you know, the, the unit that day. And so I, I guess the way I'd think of it is first, you know, what were the common ingredients of a huddle in a relatively stable healthcare environment? You, you know, we would, we would focus on our performance. So we would make sure that people can see how we're trending at a unit level on common metrics. You know, have, have we recently had HAPUs here, CAUTIs here, CLABSIs here, et cetera. We focused on stability. You know, do we have the, the, the basic methods in place, the training in place, the materials like the supplies in place to get today's work done today? And then can we, can we basically see what's happening as it relates to a current experiment? What am I actually being asked to do today to further our you know, objective or to further our care toward a given priority, you know, whether that's, you know, I mean, clavsy reduction or mortality reduction or. And in short, at a, at a unit level, we'd find is that people didn't have a hard time philosophically buying into it, but it was still like herding cats, right? It didn't mm -hmm. always feel like the priority. It was hard to get attendance very good. Um, and, and so it was really, it was hard to maintain. And we had to do a lot of coaching with leaders and a lot of leader rounding just to hold the thing together. And I'd be happy to amplify this, but you know, once the pandemic hit, everything changed, right? I'd find that I'd be walking into a unit that had, you know, an evolving population of patients that they were caring for with, you know, COVID was, you know, the very beginning, we're learning things that we'd never had to do before in terms of the donning or the doffing or the admission processes or other things. And people were scared, so they listened. You didn't have to talk people into going to the huddle. Yeah. Um, but but what we learned is that we were able to do things that people didn't always believe we could do. You know, previously we'd, you know, thought, hey, gosh, how are we going to learn something today and implement a new standard tomorrow? And everybody said, well, we can't do that. You know, we have 100 nurses that rotate through the unit. It's impossible to do the just-in-time training. You know, we're, but. But then we learned that if we needed to be trained in a new way of donning and doffing or a new way to get a patient safely up from the ER before anybody was ever vaccinated, that everybody was all ears and everybody learned from the case yesterday. We found you know, the things that might have gone wrong or might have been improved. And it, and, and it wasn't actually that hard to train everybody on the next shift of what they needed to do that might look differently. And, and so you really found yourself in this spot where, gosh, you know, you had version 30 of the standard work after day 45 of trying to implement a new priority. And that sort of PDCA-based change was, was really something that we'd never felt before. And it felt good, right? You could really see things, priorities move, and, and places change at a pace that we hadn't seen. So, you know, I think right now the question is, how do you hold on to that? How do you do that at a steady state? How do you do it without exhausting everybody? But how do you actually keep the momentum as well? And and that's where a lot of our thinking have been recently. Yeah, it's going to, uh, Jake, I'll let you uh, just think of it. It's going to be interesting how perhaps maybe 25, 30, 40 years ago, we're going to look back like we do now in World War II and see all the innovation and, and the changes that came out in manufacturing due to necessity that had, you know, it had to happen. And that's kind of like you said, that we we had to make quick changes and be able to pivot uh, quickly during during the pandemic. And and as you said, we we initially said, no, we can't do that. But we we, we found out that we, we actually could. So that'll be interesting. So 
you know, healthcare is full of silos. And I feel like the power of the huddle is that it breaks down a lot of those silos if, if you get the right people in the room sharing the right information. Um, but there can I've seen examples of good huddles and I've seen examples of, of bad huddles or, or ineffective ones. Can you tell us, you know, what are the ingredients of, of a huddle that is that is, you know, a good huddle or the no huddle? Yeah. <laughs> The no I haven't figured the no huddle out quite yet, right? But, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I think for, for us, the idea is that you you want a formula that is standard enough across units and, and stakeholders that everybody knows what to expect coming into the huddle, right? So it's not that every unit is doing something differently or any every manager runs it differently. Well, I, I think, think that's a good place to start. Do you, are all of your huddles at the unit level? Because I've also seen hospital-wide huddles and department huddles. How does How is it structured? Well, there's a number of different, you know, lean organizations that have gone to what they call tiered huddles that allow some degree of tiered escalation of, of problem solving. And that's that's the way we would conceptualize ours as well, is that it starts at a unit huddle. You know, and, and we're talking a geographic unit generally there um, run by a nurse manager or equivalent. But where you, you know, hope that it's not just nursing, but a physician partner and others that are that are there as well. That. In many of our environments, we also have what we call a service line based huddle that might include several like units. I have one at 845 every day that would be the five different medicine acute care units that are about 30 beds a pop, right? So that would cover 150 beds of the institution. Um, and that's where you would escalate problems that come up in those frontline huddles and, and have you know a nursing director, someone like me as an ACMO attending that to receive those problems or to work on them. And then we do at 10 a.m. have the, the whole system huddle, right? That's the whole C-suite is on that huddle, as well as many other uh, you know, leads of, of, of what most places call ancillaries or other clinical support services, right? So that's where if I need to escalate something to radiology, I have radiology on the line, et cetera. In terms of ingredients, it, it, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, so can we visually be tracking our performance, know if there's any new events of interest to us? Can we assess today's stability? Um, and then, you know, most units have, you know, ways to check in at, you know, what needs to get escalated and what needs to circle back from prior escalation of problem solving. Do, do you guys have a, uh, <clears throat> do y'all have a standard format that you use every day, uh, what, what you report out on? Uh, we, we do. And, you know, we I discovered that Rick Shannon had been a previous guest on the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. you know, he's been at several places at UPenn and at UVA and at Duke and, you know, he was one that brought a lot of this to us, and and a lot of it is built on on that. But one of the things that was most memorable to me about Rick's very productive tenure here is that he came in and his and his very first day as the head as the head of the health system. This is almost a decade ago now. You know, he he said that there's there six things that I'm interested in hearing about every day, right? So if it was the if it was a cardiac eclampsia, happy a fall, a mortality event, you know, and and so it, it made it unambiguous what was going to go into those huddles that you were going to be doing problem solving around or what was going to show up on those metrics. I think the, the other thing it did is, is brought a certain transparency and equity to the problem solving. So it's not that if you have a mortality, I, I know Dr. Mason's a good doc and I'm not going to think much about it. But if Dr. Lancaster does, I'm more concerned or vice versa or whatever. Right. It's every every event, you know, every time. It, and and that um, that I think helped because it was unambiguous, and it it also allowed you to get out of this mindset that some of these things just happen, right? We, we're gonna, we're going to learn on every single one, and and that really set the tone, 
I think the other was a set of ingredients that we arrived at over time and understanding that, you know, that what we call the stability stuff is really important. That if I don't also know where I stand in my staffing today or that the supply on the unit is adequate or our systems make sense to us, it's really hard to do that higher order level of thinking. And that's another point that became particularly germane during the whole COVID surge. So you mentioned earlier that the units are, are led by the, the nurse manager and then hopefully you would have a physician there. You know, do you always have a physician there or is it are those the cats that you have to herd to the huddle? <laughs> uh, it, it, great question. And, and yeah, there's still some herding going on. Right. And I mean, the, the only honest answer I could give you is that it varies a lot across the unit and that that's where there are the various units. And that's where you've had to exercise most of our creativity. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's realistic to huddle with geographically based hospital medicine doctors throughout more or less any day, you know, any time I take in the morning, as long as they know when to expect it. It's less realistic to do that on a surgical unit where the surgeon's going to be gone in the OR by, you know, 6.30 a.m. So yeah. do I have to do the huddle at a different time? Do I have to recalibrate my expectations of who the most valuable LIP to have in the room is? And it's not necessarily the attending surgeon. It may be the, the APP that is working on, you know, that, that, that their service or... We, so we've had to do a lot of thinking and individualization about that, but the, the the immutable point is that you want the interdisciplinary team there, right, and focused on the same sorts of goals and to mutually appreciate how one's work affects the other. And so we've we've been as assist, insistent as we can about that. So the other thing that we've done as a, as a health system from an investment standpoint is invest in medical directors that really have the supported time to make sure these things happen. Uh, to work with their colleagues to make sure that they're they're attending or participating. Um, but we want to give them the latitude to do problem solving that makes sense for their own service, not something that is is so black and white that there's only one way to get it done. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned your 845 huddle and I said, you know, those would be that would be what I would consider a med surge unit kind of huddle. Uh, so I assume you have, you know, maybe the the ICU has their own huddle and whatnot You're, the 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 huddle that you you know it sounds like it's about in total 150 beds how long how long does that huddle take um it's never longer than 10 minutes it's usually about five what's going to come to that 845 is the mirror of the same issues but at, at sort of the higher scale right so were there lessons that we learned on unit a as it relates to how why we had at clabsy that also apply to unit b were there supply issues that came up that threatened what you know it took for us to get the job today that are going to be equally applicable to those units? And what have we already initiated to solve them so you don't duplicate effort? Um, what's the overall supply and demand for the flow today? So if you know we, we've had some really busy days on acute care in the last two weeks, that's my opportunity to tell the ICU that your outflow might not be as good today because we have a zillion borders in the ER and we're having to cross prioritize against that. Or you know here's the type of patient I can take because I. I only have female semi-private beds. I mean, you, you, it, you can get into the weeds, but it's very, it's it's it, it's it's very structured, so it goes very quickly. And you know, a lot of what we've derived from that is a real understanding that we we often undershare some of the solutions that we've already created or some of the problems that we've already escalated, and end up duplicating a lot of effort if we're not really connected in huddles like that. And then what about the top tier of the huddle where the C-suite for the system is involved? What sort of issues get raised at that level? Um, several types. On a day-to-day, you know, more or less stability standpoint, that would be an opportunity to get the word out if we're 
you know, understaffed in one area, you know, I mean, it, it, so for example, in the last couple of days, I heard that MRI had a 2X number of requests than they normally had on a Monday. And so MRI is going to run slower. And so there you're both hearing from who runs MRI about what they're doing to manage demand, but you're also receiving an ask, like, you know, medical directors, can you back, go back and prioritize some of those things, make sure that our stewardship is good. Um, so that would be a, just a, a kind of a basic example of the type of thing that gets shared. Uh, in, in the COVID era, fluctuations in staffing, you know, we're going to have to pull from A to, to work with B. That's the type of thing that would get communicated at that huddle. A lot of weird supply stuff has come up, you know, so this, you know, when, you know, one of the best examples or most memorable examples to me is that, you know, we were hit with this IV contrast shortage, you know, yeah. in the last year that, that so many places were. That's the type of thing that is very going to quick, very quickly going to make it up <clears> to that huddle, and, you know, with, with both, you know, receiving some information, but pushing out others. So, you know, here's what we need the following entities to do today to make sure that they have a, their arms around stewardship. And, you know, in short, what we saw from an example like that is how much easier it makes that huddling to get your arms around an issue like that quickly. Or, or I should say how easy the huddling makes it to get your arms around that quickly, right? So by the end of the day, we want to understand exactly what your use is. We're sending a quality and performance coach out to help make that visible at it, you know, within the radiology suite, for example. Um, and that, 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 that really accelerated some of our problem solving. Yeah, that we, um, a group of us, we went, we went out to Salt Lake city to visit Intermountain back in the, in the fall. And they have, I think maybe it may be a seven layer tiered huddle. And it was it was quite impressive. You know, they start at the basic unit and, and I think within within an hour or an hour and a half, uh, you know, everything is has bubbled up all the way to the very top. It, it was it was quite impressive. Well, and I'm not sure we've gotten to that sort of a ballet, but, you know, the, the, the three you know, we're we're a, you know, about a 650 bed hospital. We're not huge. And, mm -hmm. and for us, three layers have tended to work pretty well. Um, I've, I've tended to find that, you know, at, I wouldn't know how to do it any lighter than that, meaning each of those has a pretty essential function and, and it would feel to me like you, you would, you're either wasting somebody's time or asking too much of them to, you know, but I, I think that's going to, that's going to depend on the size of the facility. Sure, sure. So we were talking earlier about resident education and, and lean and um, quality and safety. Do you involve residents in your huddles? Usually not, though there are a couple of places, and uh, you know, pediatrics has done a better job of that, at least on and off, for example. Um, some of our smaller environments, it's made it easier to involve the residents in the huddles, um, particularly those that, because they're more specialized, the residents run, rotate through the, the same units, not just the same environment, you know, on a, on a, on a more frequent basis. So the answer is sort of, you know, in those smaller environments, we, we, we may very well invite the resident to that huddle, our ICUs have done a pretty good job of that in the medicine side recently. On acute care, it's really that we want those residents to have a, a you know, clear line of sight to the medical director who is going to be involved in all of those huddles, but also their conduit for information. You know, I mean, here's, here's what we're working on. We need you guys to use the following checklist every time you put in a central line or every time you do X, Y, or Z. So you know, to ask, for example, of my acute care medical directors right now, is that they're meeting with the house staff teams on a weekly basis, informally, briefly, just to make sure that they're they're kind of summarizing the download of what's been learned in that huddles, that huddle, and they're escalating to that huddle anything that the house staff are seeing that, that would be relevant. And that's worked pretty well. 
it's a garden that requires constant tending though. Sure. Yeah. I wanted to ask more about that. I mean, you mentioned sustainability earlier and, you know, it's easy to start something. And I feel like in the beginning, there's a lot of energy around a new initiative, like a daily huddle. How do you sustain it in the long term and, and make sure that the huddles are as, if, as effective as they were when you started the initiatives? Yeah, you're you're right that that's the key question. And I, I wish I could tell you that I'd, I'd completely figured it out. You know, I honestly think that that's the question I've struggled with most over the arc of the last 10 years of quality that we've done. And I have learned a couple of things, though. I, you know, I think one is that there has to be a genuine bi-directionality to those huddles. Like, that gets talked about a lot in terms of the catch ball, in terms of the goal setting, in terms of things like this. But, you know, it, it it's easy to fall into a place where really those huddles are a way the leadership deploys the things that they wish the front line was working on. But it's not really the place that you're receiving what's coming up at the front line and problem solving it, right? And I think people get more interested in coming to those huddles when they see that there really is that, you know, that genuine bi-directionality and they really can see the stuff that they're bringing forward solved. And that's actually one of the things that COVID helped more than it hurt. I mean, you know, we, we weren't perfect. And so there were plenty of things that our staff were still frustrated about going through that experience. Don't get me wrong. But in general, it it pulled us into this rhythm where there were leaders in those huddles in the morning, staff would bring process problems to them. The leaders were on that unit for a lot of the day. And by the next morning, there was something to say about how things were going to look differently. And when I'm attending a huddle that feels like that, I'm, I'm more apt to bring things to it. I'm, I'm more apt to trust it. I'm more apt to want to attend. And, and so the pace that we settled into there, I think, really helped us in a, in a fundamental way, creating more belief that this can actually work. But I, I think it's probably right to also pause and say, like, well, wait a second, you know, what, what, what then really did it take to make that happen? And one of the things that it took is leaders having the time and, and you know, almost physically, literally relocating themselves to, to the unit in order to make that problem solving possible. Right. I mean, to this day, my office is like I'm talking to you from the, you know, a, a room on the COVID unit that, that we ran at the very beginning, because what you found is that the only way you could get that problem solving done is if you were if you were there embedded. Yeah. And it, and it, it really put a whole new, you know, sort of light on, on what sort of gimbal work that we did and what that really meant. Yeah, what what you said was so true. As a leader, we have we have to close that loop or we have to follow up. Um, even if it's no, we can't do that right now. <laughs> you know, some, you know, you'd rather, uh, you know, we'd rather be told no than just not be told anything at all and, and be, be sitting there wondering. Um, we talked to Jake, Jake mentioned resonance, uh, just a few minutes ago. And, you know, I, I'm sure when I trained continuous improvement, improvement science, I mean, I'd, it wasn't even talked about at all. Do you guys at UVA, do y'all try to integrate any improvement work into your GME program? Uh, we do. That's a little bit program specific. And so there's there's not really a UVA standard. There may be a UVA surgery or a UVA medicine standard. I, I think we've made a lot of inroads. And that's another thing I would thank Rick for is that he put such a cultural emphasis on that sort of learning that, you know, now across a couple generations of health system leadership, a lot of it has stuck. But I, I really do think that it's it, it's hard to do that all in a classroom, right? Yeah. We, we do have some, you know, classroom learning for those for those house staff. 
but the vast majority of it is things that you'd be exposed to through relationships with faculty that are involved in the same, through medical directors that are out there on the units doing it, um, through being asked to, to do the root cause problem solving around a catheter-associated urinary tract infection and seeing sort of how that works, that there is a standard, that there is an A3 type of thinking to it, that there is a place where then that goes and the learning happens afterwards. And so I think it's how staff pick up a lot that way if, if there's really a real uh, vitality to the culture in doing those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was coming through, I think there was a new requirement that residency programs incorporate quality improvement into their training in a, some sort of formalized way. I don't know. It was still kind of in the early days when I was coming through, but I don't know how that has evolved and whether or not that has really taken shape. Yeah, it's absolutely there in the common program requirements and in, in many of those that relate to individual specialties. Without getting into the details, I, I think that the key is making that accessible, right? The, AC, the ACGME has seen the need for it, and institutionally, we have a need to do it. I think it's more efficient if you don't carve it out as its own curricular thread sometimes, as you just make sure that it's baked into the unit-based yeah. experience of those, of those house staff. In certain ways, I think it's us as faculty that are holding it back, which is that since we didn't have the training integrated into our own experience back when we, we have to really envision a different way of doing it and, and, and to, to welcome its integration. So, I mean, the most toxic thing that you can get is a more senior faculty member rolling their eyes that, you know, we, we don't have time to do that debrief around the, around the caudi, around the quads, around the mortality, whatever else, because then that, that's the hidden curriculum, right? And, you know, I, I think in any given environment, when there's a lot of faculty involved, you're, you're going to get some more receptive than others. Absolutely. Well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. We, um, you know, we could sit here and talk all day, uh, but unfortunately, we, we, we're going to have to cut it, cut it off. But on, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, we uh, just want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, to our listeners out there, you can um, get CME credits for listening to these podcasts. And once again, Paul, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Take care. Thank you.